Hello and welcome to Pairing, a podcast where we pair wine with art and pop culture. I am your host, Emma Scherzarko, and this week Winston and I were joined by Rafael Gamboa, filmmaker and host of the YouTube video channel The Long Take, which we've talked about many times on Pairing and highly recommend that you check out if you're at all interested in film. Seriously, it feels like you're taking a film class, but you're watching a free YouTube video. It's amazing! And one of his video essays is on none other than the king of the monsters himself, Godzilla. Now, this episode was kind of refreshing for me because I know basically nothing about Godzilla, so I kind of got to take a back seat. But Winston absolutely adores Godzilla, and so he asked Raphael to come on and talk about possibly the most iconic movie monster in history. We had such a great time talking about the history of Godzilla and many of the kaiju, or the other monsters in Godzilla's universe, that we talked for a very long time, and so I'm splitting the conversation into two episodes. In this first part, we talk about the evolution of Godzilla and how he's perceived differently in Japanese and American cultures. Raphael and Winston both taught me so much about what Godzilla symbolizes, Japanese history, and my new favorite creature, Mothra. And it made me so excited to see Godzilla King of the Monsters, which was really fun. Go check it out. It's just a fun monster movie. And listening to this episode will give you the context with which to appreciate it if you don't already know a lot about Godzilla. Then, in two weeks, we'll have part two, wherein Raphael explains more about many of the kaiju, and I pair wine with each of them. Whether you care about Godzilla or no, I think you'll find these episodes fascinating. Before we begin, just a Godzilla-sized thank you to all of our patrons, especially to our producer-level patrons, Emma Cohen, Rena Sarame, Zoo Yorker, Allison Turi, and Michael Beck, who are all more beautiful and badass than Mothra, and most especially to our advanced producer, Mara Zobrist, who is more talented than Millie Bobby Brown. And that's saying a lot. She's so good. Oh my god. Last week, Winston and I had so much fun doing an all-patron live stream episode on Game of Thrones, and you can watch that right now if you go to patreon.com slash pairingpodcast and pledge as little as $1 a month to our show. We also did a patron-requested mini-episode on Breaking Bad, which is available to patrons at the $12 and up level, and I'm working on getting some emailed personalized pairings to our $5 patrons. There's so much more pairing to be had, so come check out what we got. Last but not least, I have a request for you, dear listener. After, during, or even before you start this episode, would you recommend us to a friend? I mentioned this on Twitter the other day, but we're on track to have garnered as many downloads in the past six months as we did in our first 12. That, to me, is a huge accomplishment, and I want to get even more folks listening in. Our listeners are some of the most thoughtful and engaged of all podcast listeners, and I know that you know someone else who would like the show. So if you can take two minutes today to recommend us to someone, that will help us so much to grow our audience, which will help with things like getting sponsors and expanding the Patreon, which will let us keep on pairing for years to come. Thank you, in advance, for sharing pairing. Hashtag. Without further ado, here is episode 39. Godzilla, Part 1, with Rafael Gamboa. Oh my gosh, okay. Um, So here we are with none other than Mr. Rafael Gamboa. He is of the long take fame, as well as his award-winning and much-lauded short film Violet that's making the rounds right now. He's the man with the plan. Hire him to do your thing. Um, And and we are here to talk about arguably my favorite non-Captain America superhero, Godzilla, (laughs) (laughs) who is basically the opposite of Captain America (laughs) in many ways. Kind of. Um, But uh, Rafa has done some incredible work um, on Godzilla already, specifically about the, the remake uh, starring Brian Cranston and Ken Watanabe and whatever that guy's name is. Um, and Which one? Which our, one? The, the young guy? You um, know, boring white guy number seven. Yeah. 
remember uh, his name. Aaron Taylor Johnson, something like that. Something, yeah, that yeah. sounds right. Sure. That sounds right. Yeah. But you should watch his essay on the long take. It's fantastic way to spend about 25 minutes of your time. And Even less. I just watched it, and it was like 17 yeah. minutes. Yeah, it's probably closer to 17, 18, yeah. Perfect little... Uh, I appreciate the plug, guys. That's... Uh, oh, it's a, it's a, it's a very uh, uh, complimentary introduction. Thank you. Well, we appreciate your time. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. We uh we we've also plugged you even when you weren't here. Uh, just yeah, because I tend to rip off your commentary whenever <laughs> I can. Yeah, I know you guys um and you guys referenced me for uh, Ripley right for Alien. Yeah, um, yeah, we 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 did because I wanted to. Yeah. I love Alien. That's yeah, one of my favorite yeah, franchises I, of all time. If we if we ever do an Alien episode, well, we'll have to bring John Paul back. Because uh, that was from the Cats in Film episode, um, and so mm. we were covering major, major Cats in Film, uh, and so obviously had to talk about <laughs> oh Alien. Jonesy, of course, yeah. uh, Jonesy, of course, <laughs> before Captain Marvel, possibly you know the most right. famous space cat, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, for <laughs> well, sure. Uh, okay, well, maybe here's how we can get into this, because um, I, well, I don't want to speak for you, Emma, but it sounds yes. kind of like you were wanting mostly to sort of jump in with the wine yes, pairings. Yes, I'm one. very excited because. I'm going to lose a lot of nerd cred here, but I don't know a lot about Godzilla. Like I've seen many of the like the I've seen the original, I've seen a few of them here and there. I saw the one that came out in 2014, but but I've never been like super into Godzilla, but I know that both of you really are, and so I'm very excited. I'm also super excited for Godzilla uh, King of the Monsters. Oh my God, which is me coming too. out soon. Yeah, it looks super fun. It looks yeah. great. And that leads me to why I chose the wine that Winston and I are drinking. Rafa, I'm mm. sorry that we're not there to share this with you, but we'll. Oh, that's totally okay. <laughs> we'll do it next time. Um, but so, uh, so this is a Nebbiolo. So I sort of cheated because Nebbiolo is the primary grape of Barolo, which is a region in North. West Italy. I've talked about it several times on the podcast because I love it. And uh, Barolo is fondly referred to as the king of wines. So uh, I thought for the king of the monsters, we might as well be drinking the king of wines. It yeah. sounds totally appropriate. Yes. Perfect. Right. I approve. Right. Also, so is rum since Godzilla tends to come from and return to the sea. And mm. rum was part of the epic Atlantic slave trade triangle of ocean based. <laughs> Colonial trade. Huzzah! Uh, yep. That's what I'm sipping, some rum. But anyway, uh, <laughs> just getting in there, like um, Rafa has thought way more deeply, or you have, Rafa, thought way more deeply about this than me. I basically started getting exposed to Godzilla when I was little because my, my folks would go to New Mexico a couple times a year, and I, there really wasn't much there for kids. So like one of the things they would do is they'd take us to what was our local like book and movie store called Hastings at the time. Mm. It's since gone out mm-hmm. of business, Rip. And they would get like the five ninety nine double feature of Godzilla movies on VHS. Oh, nice. And yeah. I was like allowed to do that while they were attending or they were like going they're, to parties, hosting parties. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was like go. I get to go in a little room and I have the little TV with the <laughs> with Godzilla versus Rodan and Godzilla versus Mega Godzilla, Mecha Godzilla, yeah. um, as a back to back or you know whatever it was. I remember being traumatized by Godzilla versus Mothra mm. when I was young because I was so used to the idea of Godzilla as a good guy. Yeah. That, <laughs> that seeing him as the antagonist, which he originally was, you know, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but seeing him put back in that role was like traumatic for me, although I do still remember the song. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Uh, th- it's a good one. Godzilla versus Mothra is a really good one. It really uh, is. I it's funny because like I um I didn't have that experience. I actually came into my Godzilla love very late in the game, mm. um like almost almost embarrassingly late in the game. And the reason why was because I'm actually kind of a fan of um now I'm drawing a blank. Gareth Edwards, the guy who directed the remake of Godzilla, right, right, uh, in 2014. Um, I had seen his film Monsters and was blown away that he basically made it himself because he was a visual effects guy. He, he took like a like a red camera down to Mexico and it was like him and a couple actors and he was basically doing everything and doing all the editing visual effects himself. I know he spent about $400,000 on it, so it wasn't totally like, you know, made with pocket lint basically, but um, still right. a very impressive feat. And then he went from that to doing Godzilla. It was a huge leap, you know, and then from there to Star Wars. So when the Godzilla movie came out, I was like, I'm going to watch that. 
I'd never really seen a Godzilla movie before, like from beginning to end. I'd seen little bits and pieces here and there, and I thought, oh, it's just kind of silly stuff, right? Mm-hmm. I watched the Godzilla movie in 2014 when I really liked it, and I thought, you know what? I really need to watch the original, you know? Mm-hmm. So luckily for me, uh, shortly, like right, right around that time, cri- the Criterion Collection had released a brand new edition of the very first movie, and I watched it, and I was blown away by how good it was. Is that 54 that that Godzilla 54, came out? yeah. I was blown away. And then yeah. the first thing I did immediately after watching it is I, I put it back in, and I watched it with a commentary, which was written by... Mm-hmm. Um, done by a guy who uh, literally wrote the book on the series uh, doing a sort of critical look at, at the series as a whole. And when I was hearing his commentary, I was like, this is amazing. This is just blowing my mind that I never, you know, I, I, as an American, I just always thought that the Godzilla movies were just, you know, cheesy fun. Fluff. I didn't just realize that dudes in suits. they came, that they originally started with a super serious movie yeah. about a very traumatic time in Japanese history. Um, and that on top of that was a movie that holds up a lot better than most of the other Godzilla movies of, that followed. Uh, part of it's, I guess, the black and white, but part of it too is also just how emotional that movie is. Um, it, it's a very heartfelt film about tragedy and trauma on a social level. And I found it incredibly touching. And then I watched as many as I could, which uh, not as easy as it sounds because they're not the most available films to find on streaming. Um, And of the ones that are, you have to know which ones you're looking for because a lot of them are like the the versions that were edited for American audiences where they change some things and they have some bad dubs and that kind of thing. The dubs are like, very piquant yeah. in their horribleness. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and the, I think like the the dubbing is like tr- like classic bad dubs that you would th- you associate with movies from the sixties and seventies, right? Yeah, Guys sure. were just like black eye patch. Oh, don't hit me! You know, <laughs> yeah. like they talk that kind of weird sing songy yeah. voice. And you they should have like known I was movie. lying to you from the beginning. Ah. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then, like, the worst stuff isn't the dubs, it's the re-edits. And there are a lot of different movies out there that have different versions that I think most people in English-speaking countries are more familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, like, for example, Godzilla 84, which has about five different titles. Um, there's, uh, It's also called The Return of Godzilla. Um, and I think it's also just referred to as Godzilla. And uh, It was a, a remake. It was kind of a reboot right. of the series um, in 84. The American version is the one that most people are familiar with, which is Godzilla 85. So that's pretty confusing. Godzilla 84, Godzilla 85. That is confusing. Um, and that one changes a lot of plot points. So if you don't know, you have to like do your research, which is kind of funny like for a, for a movie series about guys in rubber suits that you have yeah. to look up and make sure you know what you're watching so you understand what version of the movie you're right, watching. Right, But yeah, so I basically started kind of late in the game, like around 2014. Um, and... I've been a big fan of the big guy ever since. So just real quick, that reminds me of not as like a specific wine, but a kind of concept in wine that I can kind of relate to that, which is that, Mm -hmm. you know, having worked in wine stores and like being familiar with producers and stuff like that, the more I realize like how important it is to be familiar with specific producers of wine. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you can say, you know, like – Pinot Noir from Oregon is all great, but it's not. And like, you need to like the more you know, the more you th- the more you can know about the spe- the specificity of each wine, the better yeah. off you'll be. And so it's kind of the same thing. Like you think like wine is just you know to be enjoyed. You wouldn't want to have to worry about like knowing which right. one is what it is specifically. But just like just like the Godzilla movies. <laughs> it's it really helps if you uh, do your research beforehand. Right. What's well, a big yeah. broad property, right? It's oh, all yeah. so huge. To, to make yeah. an ironic comparison, like James Bond is sort of that way too. It's like James Bond, the property everybody kind of knows and is familiar with, and people have their feelings about it generally. But right. then there's a big difference between you know the director of Skyfall and the director of Tomorrow Never Dies, you know? And, sure. And right. all the actors involved and everybody, all the other technicians and everything. So, sure. Um, I don't know. For, it has to do for, with how you interact with a known quantity, I guess. Yes. For those yeah. of us who don't know, <clears throat> me, um, so how <laughs> many Godzilla movies are there in total, would you say? Oh, um, I don't know that number off the top of my head. I can look it up real quick, but I think it's around... 
It's like a lot. I think it's around 20, 27, 28. Wow. Um, but that's not counting because uh, Netflix just recently released a series of anime uh, like OVAs. They're about like, you know, 45 minutes long each. Oh, gotcha. That's, uh, and that's Toho Studio, so it's a legit Godzilla thing. Cool. Do they still own the property? Does Toho still own the property or license it out? Yes, they do. Um, it's it's still their thing. So they licensed it out for to Legendary for the American versions, but um, it's uh, it's still their their baby. So the most recent release they had was is this anime thing. I'm gonna give you the exact answer right now. Okay, so in terms of Godzilla Toho properties, mm-hmm. thirty two movies, uh, and I believe that's not including. Yeah, these are movies that only include Godzilla. So this is not including. Standalone movies like uh, Rodan or um, Mothra's mm-hmm. movies, mm-hmm. Uh, which I believe Mothra has four standalone movies, a, a trilogy in the 90s, I think. And, um, wow, I didn't know that. Its original introduction, which was, uh, well, Mothra, before it was incorporated into the Godzilla world. Then you have uh, foreign adaptations, which they're all American. You have the, the re-edit of the original Godzilla, which included... Um, God, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Uh, they filmed a bunch of scenes with this um, American actor, uh, and they retitled it Godzilla King of the Monsters so they could have an English-speaking guy in there mm. uh, for American audiences to understand the film. Uh, then there was a King Kong versus Godzilla. There's been a couple of those, and there's going to be another one. Uh, and then the two American adaptations. And that is probably what we're going to be in for after the King of the Monsters, right? Is sort of yeah. Actually, like that's that's slated for release that. for twenty twenty is Godzilla versus Kong. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're looking at well, almost almost forty, if not over forty, movies involving Godzilla or related to the Godzilla universe. So it's way more of a like intense kind of experience to get caught up on all of them. Right. Uh, than the MCU or the James Bond film franchise. Um, it's a lot of movies. It's a lot of movies. Uh, and and you can be forgiven for not having watched all of them because not all of them are particularly great. They okay, are kind no. of cheesy. Okay, no. Godzilla vs. Okay. Monster Zero is not the best title no, in the but, series. But there sure. are highlights that, that are definitely worth watching uh, if you're more inclined for the serious variety. For sure. Uh, than, than the silly stomping on toy buildings variety of movies. Um, well, you know, there's a time and a place. I definitely remember like being a kid and watching the rub- man in a rubber suit stomping on yeah. toy buildings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's super great. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> let me, let me um, if I can kind of direct us a little bit, let yep. me see if we can talk about kind of before we get into Godzilla's Rogues Gallery, let's talk about sort of Godzilla versus Godzilla almost. Like the sort of the mm. evolution of Godzilla as, mm. you know, like representation of colonial force to like avatar of Japanese independence or whatever mm. it is, defender of humankind, yeah. whatever it is. And like how you personally and I personally and all, all of us can relate to that or sort of how that development yeah. goes in your mind. Okay, um, so the, re- the the reason why I find Godzilla to be the most fascinating movie monster of all time, except second only maybe, arguably, to uh, the alien from, mm. you know, Fox's yeah. universe of uh, rape monsters, which are, you know, the, that whole alien yeah. is incredibly uh, rich with subtext and meaning. Um, sure, sure. But Godzilla to me is very representative of a cultural cultural divide between America and Japan. That a lot of Americans mm-hmm. just think of him as a silly monster, but for Japanese audiences, there's a lot more of an emotional connection to him, and that's because of his origins. He started off as a uh, metaphor for uh, atomic violence. So Japan, since the in the post-war era has largely viewed itself as kind of a victim of World War II, like a victim almost Mm. of itself, Mm -hmm. that they were duped into a war by the powers that be and then suffered the consequence of that through the the Allied firebombing of Japan and then ultimately, of course, the atomic bombs dropped on civilian centers. Um, And the way that the monster was conceived of uh, was that um, the guy who came up with it was like in an airplane flying over and he was he's thinking about just recently there had been an incident involving a fishing boat uh, that there were uh, the United States was doing uh, nuclear testing out in uh, Bikini Atoll 
And this small Japanese fishing boat called the Little Dragon, I believe. I think that's what it was called. This is like early 50s, right? Like 52 or something like that? This is actually the same year as they work really oh, fast. 45? I think it was, it was 54. Um, oh, 54. Okay. So like hmm. early in the year, earlier in the year, this fishing boat kind of strayed into the radius of the atomic bomb fallout, I guess. Um, hmm. And, you know, all the, all the fishermen got radiation poisoning. A few of them died. Um, and it became this whole big uh, scandal. Yeah. And it was an uncomfortable reminder of the, the cultural trauma. Everyone was still, it was still very fresh in their minds. It was just like 10 years before that so many Japanese had perished in those atomic bombs and it, all that uh, health complications that came from it. People were, were living with that. This is like recent memory, you know? Yeah, we're talking about nine years since, since the atomic bomb, right? Like people are still dying of leukemia in the hospitals. Absolutely. Like, like to this yeah. day, to say nothing yeah. of right then, right? Yeah. 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 So Japan, probably more than any other country on the planet, was incredibly worried and concerned about the nuclear age and mm -hmm. this ramping up of the Cold War and everyone, you know, uh, the United States and the Soviet Union in this pissing contest about who can make the biggest boom boom, you know. Right. And it, they were the only country who had actually suffered the consequences of it. And they were incredibly worried about it. And they were, at the time, still... I don't know if they were still under the military occupation or if it had just recently ended. I think it had just recently ended. Yeah, if it had ended, it was just recently because it was yeah. through, they were still like making occupied Japanese art like that was contemporaneous at that time, like with uh, yeah. with Marlon Brando in, in Yellowface in mm, the House yep. of the Two oh, Moons yeah, or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And that was like, yeah. what, 48? Like it barely any time had passed or something. But you can check me in all these dates from IMDb, but... That military occupation lasted lasted a while. Yeah. I'm I'm sure your listeners will will totally hold us to task for every every little bit of drunken, misstated um, trivia and details. Yeah, our listeners are very fastidious. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, we still have military. No, they're bases very in kind Osaka and forgiving. Thank you, thank you to yeah. our listeners. <laughs> yeah, like American military bases in Osaka. That's like one of the big employers. Yeah. on the island. Yeah. So. Hmm. Like we're still there, in, yeah. In, yeah. In in one sense, the occupation hasn't really ended, right? We still have military bases in and around Japanese territory. So, th and this is a long running theme that the the Japanese Godzilla movies um, slowly warm up to talking about is you know the, Japan's relationship to the United States. It's kind of love hate relationship in mm -hmm. in, in terms of its um, its own autonomy. But anyway, at the very beginning of the when this first started the they were just coming out of all the media restrictions that the united states had imposed upon uh japan's filmmaking which is basically oh you can't you can't say anything you can't make anything directly about the war and you can't say anything negative about america that kind of stuff right and they there was this unaddressed trauma people needed to work out their feelings about what they had experienced but they didn't have any media outlet for it really not yet uh, and the guy who made the movie had all this in his mind. He had just uh, seen like a re-release of uh, the original King Kong from like 33 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Right. And he thought, man, it'd be cool if we could do something like that because those effects are amazing. But then make it about the atomic bomb explosion. So then he had this whole idea of like, oh, yeah, what if uh, because of nuclear testing that Americans are doing, it causes a mutation in some creature, some ancient creature that then comes and wreaks havoc upon the land. And the design of Godzilla himself is is very obviously metaphorical. I mean, the, the, the form of his skin, the, the look of his skin, is based on the kind of uh, intense keloid scarring that Japanese people got from the atomic blasts, huh, the survivors. I didn't know that. Yeah, so it was inspired by that kind of look. And of course, Godzilla has atomic powers. He's got an atomic heat yeah, ray. Yeah. And uh, he comes from the ocean. He rises from the deep. The The very first film, which again, I highly recommend everyone watches. So you don't have to like guys in rubber suits, but if you have a love for any kind of thoughtful science fiction, you have to watch the original Godzilla. It is an amazing movie. Um, and that movie was very direct. I mean, it, it was it was not, it never named Americans really by, by name, I don't think. 
But the movie begins with a scene of a small Japanese fishing boat just out in the water in the ocean uh, getting attacked by a thing you don't see, like a big flash of light, mm -hmm. which eventually ends up being Godzilla. But the parallels would have been intensely obvious to sure. Japanese audiences. They sure. would have immediately gotten the, the symbolism right. of it. Yeah, American audiences today might not make the same connection if they didn't. Right, we wouldn't really think too much about if it. they weren't thinking about Although it. it's yeah. worth pointing out that the remake of 2014 that got you into it originally, as you point out in your essay, apes certain very iconic moments it does. From that original in terms of like the fishing boat. And it it, re, uh, it updates it for like a modern context. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I think mostly the thing that really gets to me is 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 about uh, like people working through collective trauma and, and Godzilla in yes. this original incarnation as a representation of your helplessness. Mm. Yes. And eventually yeah. like Godzilla can become a protector but whether Godzilla is a protector or an aggressor, it doesn't matter. There's nothing people can do really on either side. Yeah, no, the, the really interesting thing about Godzilla throughout the franchise, but particularly in this movie, which I think shows it's very indicative of a cultural difference between you know us and, and, uh, and Japan, uh, is their relationship to the monster itself, right? Mm -hmm. So you watch the movie and it's, the, the characterization of Godzilla in that first movie is like an angry, embodiment of of nature you know this is a it's a force of nature it's he's a he's a creature in a lot of pain like the the portrayal of that monster is that what happened to it is painful it hurts you know so it's it's just walking around stomping and destroying things as as a kind of blind act of rage and in many ways it's a punishment on humanity right it's right. your the fault the world for, is for, fighting back for doing this nuclear testing and destroying the planet and doing all right. this stuff right but it's also uh, an embodiment of the terror Japan felt when those bombs were dropped. There are plenty of shots and scenes where they cut to people on the street who are like dying or about to die, and the 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 feelings of fear and helplessness and having to accept this horrible death would have been extremely palpable, you know, to people who just ten years ago this was it's it's like you know nine eleven for people who who were right. there, you know, right. it's that it's that recent. Uh, but then, and here's the interesting thing, American monster movies rarely feel any kind of empathy towards the monster. Mm -hmm. The monster ex exists as an other the entire way through. And, and no matter, even like the, the most interesting in terms of symbolism and metaphor, uh, monsters like uh, the alien or, or the thing and you know, stuff like that, right. almost always we look upon them as, well, the monster. They're not really worthy of our feelings, right? King Kong is an exception, but I think it's because he's an ape. It's easy to feel empathy for a mammal, you know? Right, right. But the interesting thing about this is that, you know, this monster, Godzilla, just, he comes in, he, he lays waste to, you know, all these buildings. Thousands of people die. They have to kill this thing. They've got no choice if they want to live. And they get this you know genius scientist with his macguffin device to <laughs> and he's got the eye patch right this is who can watch yeah the eye patch guy yeah actually yeah. um, ends up being sarazawa sarazawa dr sarazawa yeah. yeah um and he's got a a sort of a, a doomsday device which again more references to the thing they really couldn't talk about directly the the atomic bomb totally um and he has they ask him you got to kill this thing it's the only thing that can kill it and he hesitates for a long time, he's like, I don't, I don't want to do that because if I do that, I'm opening a can of worms. You know, yeah. once once I, I use this device, what's going to stop everyone else from using it? Mm, you know, mm -hmm. and so he he's in this incredible moral quandary where he, he, I either let Japan get taken down by this monster or I let the world get taken down by my invention that I regret ever inventing, and he makes an incredibly selfless choice. He decides to go ahead and use the device but then sacrifices himself so that all knowledge of his weapon dies with him. And in that moment, the ending of that film, as everyone watches Godzilla die, it's a sad moment. Yeah. These people are, they're, they're crying and they're not crying necessarily for the doctor, they're crying because they're watching this, really it's an innocent animal. Yes, it killed a lot of people, but it's an animal. It's, it's just doing what it's doing. Right. And they have, all of them have the presence of mind to recognize that and to shed tears over the death of this giant beast. That is 
so out of like what Americans usually see when they're looking at monster movies, right? Yeah. It's an incredibly beautiful moment. And I think um, what that moment kind of represents is that coming to terms with the the interconnectedness of the whole thing that, you know, we are a part of nature and we are harming right. nature and mm -hmm. we are suffering because of it. And we are all of us, regardless of nation, are part of this. We are guilty of this. We are equally guilty as much as we are a victim. Right. And it's such a beautifully complex uh, sentiment for a movie about a guy in a rubber suit, right. you know, like right. stomping right. on toys. Yeah. Which, again, we could use a lot more of in all of our societal dealings, you know, that kind of yeah. radical empathy. Absolutely. But I also, I wonder just on the macro political level, how much mm -hmm. that has to do with um, when imperial societies see their chickens come home to roost. You yeah. know, mm -hmm. like for us in the United States, it's still like our boys go over there and kill yeah. those people. <laughs> right. And it's not until like they come back and are like getting addicted to heroin and yeah. being mistreated and becoming homeless that we're like, wait yeah. a minute, why is this happening? But like right. Japan went through all the phases of empire yes. in a, what, a very compressed years? amount of time. Eight, like yeah. 16 years? Uh, let's see. The Japanese began their thing. That's crazy. Like from rapid expansion to collapse to utter humiliation. I guess it depends on when you start the clock on them because they definitely started their their ambitions early, like pretty early on, like getting involved in World War One and having their little right. tiff with Russia. Well, you know? and like snatching up the German islands. Yeah, yeah. here and there, taking oppor opportunistic bites of territories. But their big push happened in like what 1936 around then when they started their their invasion of china and all that yeah 36 37 i think they were in manchuria mm -hmm. yeah yeah and they already had korea from the 1905 russo-japanese yeah. war and so it was like this sort of rapid expansion into yes. slow collapse into like utter devastation yeah in a whiplash fast amount yeah. of time very yeah. compressed amount of time yeah yeah so this Obviously, this is just making me think of, of one other thing in the in the alcohol realm, which we've talked about a little yes. bit. But um, yes, we need we need some we need something to drink after all that. <laughs> I mean, no, that's amazing. I, there's so much to yeah. think about. But it it does make me think of sake mm. and sake production because sake is like so complex and and it's a whole different system than making wine. Like in some ways it's closer uh -huh. to beer brewing than it's it like is. It's like that weird mix of beer it and is, wine. It is, it is. And it's half and it's industrial. So, and there's, uh, I I really need to do a much more in-depth episode about sake because we did this. Yeah, that'd like, be awesome. Oh my God, it, it's so fascinating. I'm, I'm such a nerd for sake and how it's made. But interestingly enough, even though, you know, sake has probably been made in some form for a very long time, it's actually very young in terms of what it is like now. And so like in the past 100, 120 years or so, so relatively new processes have been invoked in, in sake production. And that just makes me think of, you know, if you think on a, on a historical scale of, of how <laughs> people have been making alcohol for a really long time and, but so like talking about Japan going through this really intense period really quickly, mm -hmm. this this kind of phenomenon of sake and and it's really a product of the Tokugawa shogunate. Yeah, and and, and, and past, which is pretty recent, all things considered. Rel relatively speaking, yeah. but also just just talking about how like this this kind of sen sensibility towards Godzilla as in in this first film as both monster. Or not, or you know, it's more complex than that. It's more complex than an American viewpoint would be. I feel like well, almost and all monsters are victims. It comes up in my criminal justice reform stuff all the time. For sure, you know, but that just that just makes me think of sake because we like the way the way that we don't conceptualize that easily. We also don't conceptualize like brewing and making sake. A, a very different approach to a very similar product yes yes um, very yeah. well put very well put yeah um and the the, the really interesting thing to, to go to winston's earlier uh point about the the transformation of the monster from that first yeah, movie all the way yeah, yeah. through the rest of the series the evolution of the creature from from being a um kind of a force of nature that doesn't really have a any kind of 
you know, good or bad kind of alignment, just, uh, sure. just a thing that's, that happens, um, to becoming the protector of Japan, yes. uh, is a really interesting journey from the perspective of, um, if you look at it as an entire nation coping with trauma, mm-hmm. uh, that it goes from confronting the fear, right? Don't, don't go in denial, like to look it in the face, confront the thing that traumatized you. That's the first movie. And then with the next couple of sequels, as as he starts transitioning from that kind of force of nature into a hero protecting the planet from alien invasion and all this other stuff, falling in love and finding him lovable, to me, that's like a journey of coping. Right? Yeah. You, you learn to confront the fear and then you learn to live with it. Yeah. Though maybe a little Stockholm Syndrome as well, too. A little bit, yeah. I kind of think like as the as the JD also is, changes though. It's not like yeah. they they fall in love with the creature who continually keeps kicking their ass, you know. Right. Like Godzilla does change, and they kind of develop this healthier relationship between the two of them. And Godzilla has to be convinced to do it. Actually, Mothra has to do it. Uh, like in I think it's uh, Godzilla versus now what is it? It's the one I forget what it's called. It's the one with uh, Mothra and Ghidra and. Um, Godzilla and Rodan, and they all fight together. That sounds like a, that King of the Mo- a King of the Monsters version. Because yeah, um, Godzilla versus Mothra, Godzilla is still very much antagonist, right? Yes. And Mothra is the savior of mankind. Yeah, uh, it's, it, that's just basically Mothra and, and him going at it. Yeah. Um, but it, the problem with remembering all these titles is that so many of them are, are very similar uh, sure. in different right. eras. Um, but whatever, it's it's the movie where 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 Mothra and, and has to convince... Godzilla and Rodan, who are busy fighting amongst each other, to help Mothra fight Ghidra. And Ghidra's the three-headed dragon, right? What? Yeah, this is the the big bad of the entire series. The the purely evil monster from another planet. Um, what's what's his name? Ghidara. Ghidara. Or Ghidorah. And um, I think actually in Godzilla versus Monster Zero, that's where they introduce Ghidorah, because. Yeah. If not, then they recycle him because Monster Zero is very much just Ghidorah. No, no. Monster Zero is the name that the American uh, distributors gave the creature for their version of the movie. Gotcha. But it was it was always Ghidorah. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Always. Gotcha. So, yeah. But anyway, so but Mothra has to convince him. So they have this really great scene where, where Mothra is like telling him, you guys got to do this. I can't do it alone. All, of course, in chirps and beeps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's all Wars. subtitled, right? And they're chirping, they're making their sounds and all that. And, and basically, both Godzilla and Rodan are like, why? We don't right. care about humans. <laughs> They've only ever been assholes, you know? Right. We don't give a shit. Uh, and Mothra's like, but you got to do it because like, it's for the fate of the planet. And so then Mothra basically has to go out there and sacrifice herself mm. to do it. And mm. in doing that, you know, she kind of ends up guilting Godzilla and Rodan into doing the right thing, you know, and that's the beginning of Godzilla's journey into her- heroism. Hmm. Which is interesting because hmm. that's how Mothra defeats Godzilla in the Mothra versus Godzilla. Godzilla kills the like, oh, yeah. fully developed Mothra, and it's Mothra's two baby larvae yeah. that like wrap Godzilla in this silk that is also like yeah. steel wire, Whoa. and you see Godzilla like yeah. bleed out and fall into the ocean. Yeah. And uh, it's, uh, the Mothra mythos is very interesting. In I, its own I love Mothra, by the way. I I, th- I think Mothra is such a beautiful creature, and the the she's always underpowered. Mm. She always gets her ass kicked, mm. but she always puts herself out there, regardless of whether the humans she's defending deserve it. Yeah, she's very Christ. She's very much like Captain America in that sense. Yeah, you know? yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. She's, she's a phoenix. Yeah, mm. yeah. Masuda, Masuda. Mm-hmm. Yep, the song. <laughs> he has these two little like 18 inch high like thumbling fairy handmaids twins. That, oh. that summon her. <laughs> yeah, they oh, speak wow. in unison and they sing in unison and they're, you know, it the series gets very strange very quickly. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. It's quite wild. <laughs> okay. So I'm I'm just I'm starting to think here because I know one thing one thing we talk about because I know nothing about mm-hmm. the the as you call them, the rogues gallery, or yeah. as they're called, the, the kaiju. Kaiju, the kaiju. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, just talking about Mothra, so it sounds like Mothra being very self-sacrificing and just kind of a workhorse kind of kind of monster. And she's very coded female. She's one of the yeah. few kaiju that is. 
Yeah, so let's talk about Mothra for a bit. Yeah. Um, Mothra is a very interesting creature. It's actually one of the most Japanese monsters you can ever imagine. It's a giant moth. Mm-hmm. Like, Americans can't take that seriously, it. you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, the closest we got was giant ants, but ants are scary when they're blown up, you right. know? Right. <laughs> but but Mothra, okay, so Mothra's cool. Mothra... Um, has had very different. Has had several different like origin stories because mm-hmm. her story has been rebooted in different series here and there. But in very general terms, Mothra is sort of like a, a divine entity, um, mm. and uh, usually uh, resides uh, on a fictional island called Infant Island, mm. where there are a, a sort of indigenous, fictional indigenous population that lives there, and. Mothra is interesting because there's kind of this um, anti-imperialist sensibility to mm. her existence. Um, she is first introduced because, like, she was introduced in a movie in 1961. Uh, it's just called Mothra. And in it, Infant Island is being used as a testing site for nuclear weapons by a fictional country that is very obviously supposed to be America. Right, uh, it's right. called yeah, like sure. Rosilica or something like that. And um, it's suspiciously populated by exclusively American white dudes speaking English, you know? <laughs> well, like, gee, go. I wonder which country this is, you <laughs> <Yeah>. know? <laughs> um, so they find out that, the, that the, uh, the island is populated. They go in there and that's when they come across the... The twins, these the, who are kind of like they're they're kind of like fairies, they're kind of like priestesses, but they they are the I guess the um, I don't know I guess the priestly cast or the 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 mouthpieces for for Mothra. They're Mothra's earthly representatives. Let's put it that way. Sure, they're her Lametatron. Yeah, sure. So they they get kidnapped by by these Americans who are just stomping in there and taking what they think they can take just because of who they are, and. They originally met because the twins were like, "You need to stop doing this. You need to stop testing. We live here. This is our our our. You know, it's a, you're destroying this place." They kidnap them instead and try to use them as a freak show, you know, prating them around the world. And so they call they call Mothra, and Mothra comes to uh, rescue the twins and to exact vengeance upon these people who have been attacking the population that Mothra uh, is basically sworn to defend. Um, and that's how kind of Mothra's whole thing began. And from that point onward, her sphere of protection kind of increases to encompass the entire planet. Uh, yeah, she's like the most pure out of all the creatures. And she's, she's, she is very much like a phoenix. She constantly dies and leaves offspring that then take over the mantle. Um, she has two forms. She's got a caterpillar form and then her uh imago form and different abilities. Uh, the, the, uh, the caterpillars mostly use silk. Mm-hmm. to like entangle their enemy and she's had different abilities otherwise she uh when she's an amago her she uses her wings to create winds she has um some psychic abilities uh she can emit poisonous scales from her wings but usually only as a last resort because it tends to kill her it's all like it's like a bee sting like using right. it tends to sap her of energy but yeah i remember she's got that like chirpy chirp kind of sonic attack yeah. That maybe has a psychic element to it. Mm. And then, yeah, the, the larvae have, like, this razor wire silk oh, cool. that they use. And actually, if, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I think her sound, those chirps, are actually a different monster sound played at very high speed. Oh, interesting. Because mm. she has that, like, burp, 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 burp. Yeah, it might be... I'm not entirely sure. I can look up. I can look it up real quick. Um, but a lot of a lot of those monster sounds are are recycled uh, and yeah. and mm. um, uh, manipulated to sound differently. It was interesting, actually, as part of our research for this episode. I looked up the original 1954 Godzilla roar mm-hmm. and how it was made. And the main thing that I took away from it was that it was essentially a a double bass, like an acoustic double bass with the strings loosened and then the composer whose name I forget but you can look it up he dipped his he dipped like a, a gardening or a or a leather glove into a bunch of pine resin oh wow and then rubbed the glove with the drying pine resin across the loosened strings of the bass <laughs> and that's how they got the original roar and the 2014 Godzilla sound designers will not and have not disclosed how they made 
<laughs> the, the reincarnation roar. Um, as as the child awesome. of uh, <laughs> classical musicians who are string players and having played violin and viola briefly myself, uh, that sounds totally true. There's some ugly sounds you can make with with a string instrument and some resin. Um, <laughs> yeah. Or not just ugly, but just profound and strange. Yeah. Well, fully sound artists are deserving of everyone's undying respect. Oh, absolutely. Because I guarantee your childhood was shaped by them. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And the stuff they do is so inventive. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so I have an answer for you. I actually have two answers for you. Okay. The uh, Mothra's roar is actually Angiris's roar sped up. So we're going to talk about Angiris. Uh, in this as well, because he's one of the monsters I picked out to talk about. Awesome. And the movie, the movie that um, where Mothra convinces uh, Godzilla to uh, to help is uh, it's actually Ghidorah the three headed monster. So it's oh, that's okay. what it, which one it is. Um, Makes sense. Anyway, there you go. Now we have there those we two go. answers. Righteous. Okay. All right. So just talking about Mothra. So I'm just I'm just thinking about wine pairings that I can do for mm. these kaiju and. For Mothra, a couple things come to mind. The first grape that comes to mind is Grenache or Garnacha, as it's called in Spain. Okay. Um, because it's very traditionally, and I have issues with this terminology, but quote-unquote feminine. It is a quote-unquote feminine grape um, because it is... <laughs> and uh, again, what makes a feminine grape? So a feminine grape is something that tends to be lighter in body, um, and it, it, when talking about a red wine specifically, lighter in body, a little bit more fruit forward rather than tannic, you know, the, the masculine wines are very, t- traditionally very tannic and very earthy, you know, that, those kind of flavors. It, it's just, you know, it's a terminology that, that wine people have used traditionally and I wish it would kind of get recycled a little bit but that's one that comes to mind not just because it's quote-unquote feminine and we're talking about Mothra as a feminine monster or or a female coded monster Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but but also talking about her her who are they the twins her her her, yeah her like summoner priestesses yeah. yeah so the thing about Grenache is that it's often used in blends and especially in blends of three grapes so there's usually Grenache, Syrah, and Moved. So I'm thinking about the twins as like Syrah and Moved, like in in conjunction singing uh, Grenache's praise. Because <laughs> Grenache often has, like it really ties everything together. Um, mm-hmm. It's a really versatile grape. But the other thing that I thought of when you said anti-imperialist, this is something mm. that I've talked about before, but I, I love it, so I'm going to bring it back. In Chile, there is a grape called Pais, but it used to be called Mission, or in other parts of the world, it's called Mission or Mission. Mm-hmm. And so it was brought over by Spanish missionaries to the Americas. But I love that in recent years, I don't know exactly how recently, they've kind of renamed it and they call it Pais, which means country or land. So rather than it be like the missionary imperialist force coming in, it's like no, like reclaiming its its uh yeah. its country, its land. You're starting to rewrite mm-hmm. history at the language level, which yeah. is, you know, I love can, that. can have a totalitarian bent, but it also can have a real real elevating effect Absolutely. I think, on discourse. Absolutely, yeah. Because, you know, that's probably a post Bolivarian you know, independence revolution type deal. And mm-hmm. at yeah, at the, least. Bo- the Bolivar is uh, Bolivia. Well, yeah, but it was it was like Gran Colombia was what it was all called, right? So yeah. like all the yeah. northern south. A lot America. of those countries share the same reverence for Simon Bolivar because he's mm-hmm. the liberator of it all. So yeah, um, you know, Colombia, Venezuela, you know, a lot of countries like that um, revere him as, a, as their liberator, basically, because right. of that. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know if that spread down to Chile or not, but I think it was mostly like in the sort of northern crescent, right, of of South America. But I, I, don't, I don't. Hey, know. I'd love to learn. There's get way at, better podcasts. Yeah. Get, about yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Get get at us if you can give us. I feel bad because I I did take like a like a Latin America history course, but I took it in Spanish, and so I was in college, and so I was like struggling a little bit just with the language yeah. aspect of it. Well, but. if you're really interested in that, the Revolutions podcast, they oh, do yeah. an entire series on the Bolivarian revolutions. Oh, awesome. And uh, 
you know, in North in South America. So that's that's worth doing. As Perfect. is his uh, series on Haiti and the Haitian Revolution. Um, they're very long. It's they're very long series, but they're very digestible episodes because they're only about hmm. twenty thirty minutes. Yeah, sure. uh, send me a link to that when we're done here because that sounds really interesting. Oh, I'll happily do that. He's like Latin Italian Dan Carlin. He's one of no, it's not not Daniele Bellelli. I'm not <laughs> oh, talking no. about him. But this guy is like one of the OG history podcasters. Like he started in 2011 or 12 doing the history of Rome in little 15 minute episodes. Oh, cool. His name is Mike Duncan, I believe. I'm sorry. Who? What is the podcast with uh, Dan- Daniele? That's called History on Fire. Oh, History on Fire. I'm sorry. <laughs> he's, I love him. He's really good. He's a, he's a history professor martial artist too, but he has the most delightful un, unreconstructed accent. Well, you're going to have to go listen to History on Fire now because we are pausing this conversation right here. And the rest, which is a discussion of many of the kaiju and what wines I'd pair with them, will be coming out in two weeks. If you don't know what to do with yourself until then, besides seeing Godzilla King of the Monsters, go check out the long take on YouTube or watch Raphael's short film Violet on Amazon. And don't forget to share us with a friend, foe, or family member and help us grow our audience. Thank you for sharing Pairing, where you come for the stories and stay for the wine. Pairing was created, hosted, and produced by Emma Scherzarko with music and audio recording by Winston Shaw, and logo artwork by Darcy Zimmerman and Katie Huey. This episode was edited by Emma Scherzarko. Follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Pairing Podcast to keep tabs on what we're up to. And feel free to send us any thoughts, questions, requests, and pairings of your own on our website, thepairingpodcast.com, via email at pairingpodcast at gmail.com, or on any social media platform. Come check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast, where you can pledge as little as $1 a month and get access to exclusive content, customized pairings from me, live streams, and more. Check out our new merch store on our website at thepairingpodcast.com slash merch. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends. Thank you so much for listening to Pairing, where you come for the stories and stay for the wine.